Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, do you ever have this experience where you are about to have someone over to your house? You're mm-hmm. about to have a house guest. And then suddenly, for the as if for the first time, you actually see what your house is like inside. Like you start to notice like what is that smell in here that I had not noticed for however long it's been here? And what is this stain on the wall? I don't even know where that came from. You suddenly are, you know, you get the the fresh eyes. Um, I would say no, not in terms of, of visitors coming to the house. I mean, you clean up before visitors come, but – Aside from discovering things for the first time, I I, I, I wouldn't say uh, that's really been my experience. I will say that, you know, there are plenty of times where, say, you cook something and it's kind of uh, – has kind of a strong smell. And then you mm-hmm. lose track of that smell uh, while you're hanging out in the house, even after you've cleaned up dishes and all. Then you go outside, maybe you take the garbage out and you come back in and you smell it all again. Like the fresh – the, the scent is fresh now. Or – you go on a trip, you're gone for a week or two, and you come back, and suddenly it's as if you smell your house for the first time in the same way that other people's houses have signature smells. Well, perhaps my brain is just weird then. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, I feel like it must be fairly common to uh, suddenly become aware of what your dwelling looks like to somebody who has not yet become blind to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so what do you do when you're having somebody over? Well, you you go through the process. You're like, I got to get this place aesthetically pleasing to somebody who isn't me. Right, yeah. You clean it up. You get rid of the clutter. Uh, and I mean, if, I guess I suppose if there is something out that would offend a visitor, you remove it. Um, but Put that, some nice music on, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and and that's certainly an area where one think where I, I certainly would think about who is visiting. Like mm-hmm. the music that I put on for say family coming over to visit might be slightly different from uh, friends coming over. Depends on the friend, I guess. Um, it's not Tool either way. No, you know, it's not <laughs> Tool's not really um, entertaining music. <laughs> Uh, you know, I would go for more – I would go for something more ambient anyway. You know, I'd go for something like Thievery Corporation. I think I would pretty much go for Thievery Corporation. If you don't like Thievery Corporation, I don't really want you in my house anyway. <laughs> but considering this ritual – oh, another big thing is the candle. You know, people are having somebody over. They light, oh, yeah. a, they light a nice smelling candle. A nice smelling candle is, is, is key here. Mm-hmm. Ideally, a, a candle with little or no scent. Because you can certainly go in the other direction and get a, a candle that smells very strongly of some sort of uh, noxious chemical. Yeah, like the Yankee, uh, what would it be, fake flower factory candle. Yeah, yeah that kind of stuff. You know, it's interesting. We were, we were publishing this episode after Christmas, but we were recording it before Christmas. This is a time when people do things like, what, heat hot cider and, mm-hmm. and cloves and uh, orange peel up uh, you know, on their, uh, their stove, not so mm-hmm. much to drink, but just to fill the, the, the house with a festive odor. Well, yeah, you want people to feel like – feel as guests that, that this is a pleasant place. But considering this ritual, I got to thinking, what if you wanted to do exactly the opposite? Like maybe you're about to be visited by people who drive you nuts mm-hmm. and you want to find a way to subconsciously convince them to leave your house as soon as possible. 
So instead of doing all this lighting the nice smelling candle, putting on the nice music, cleaning up everything that might be unsightly, you try to do everything you can to create the most aesthetically unpleasant environment possible. Do we have the science? Do we have the technology to build the ultimate unpleasant room if we wanted to? I think that everyone will find, even though some of these things are difficult to put a value on, you know, it's going to be subjective from person to person. I think we have phenomenal ability to create a, a particularly uncomfortable, unpleasant room. Okay. Well, if we're going to go about this exercise, I think we need to establish a few rules. Okay. First of all, I'd say the goal is to create the most unpleasant environment we can possibly imagine. But at the same time, we've got to have some kind of limit because we're not going to build a torture chamber, right? We're, we are assuming – what? We're not? Well, no, I, I don't want to build a torture chamber. <laughs> so let's assume a couple things. Number one, the occupant of this room is not a prisoner and can leave at any time. And number two, we're not going to consider anything that could be like violent or inflicting pain. This would be sub-nociceptive unpleasantness and discomfort. Okay. So along the lines of, say, and this is something we'll get into, uh, the design that, that may go into, say, an interrogation room. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a situation, again, where the individual is perhaps not, not being held uh, against their will and or, uh, you know, is not being uh, physically abused. Okay. And by interrogation room, I mean not only like police interrogation rooms, but also uh, an office in which one's uh, boss uh, may uh, may 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 lurk. Right. Uh, I think of this because here in our own offices, we have, and, and I don't know who made these choices, but we have some particularly painful chairs. Uh, they're like wooden stools with, with like wrought iron backs, and they're 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 perfectly okay if you treat them like a stool. But oh, if I know you what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. If you attempt to recline in them at all, it is torturous. And I think this is a long history here because I remember at a previous uh, location for our offices, there were equally uncomfortable chairs in somebody's uh, office. So if they had guests come in, guests to, to the <laughs> office to discuss something, they would be utterly incapable of becoming comfortable. Yeah, I don't think this is unique to us. This is a this is like a psych power game that's yeah. at businesses all over the place. If you want to be powerful in the negotiation across the desk, you want your chair to be taller and more comfortable and give you the opportunity to lean back. And the the person across from you should be in a shorter chair, lower to the ground, that's more uncomfortable, that forces them to lean forward. Right. And then a lot. Then suddenly, the everybody in the office says, "Hey, we want standing desk. You have to give it to us." And then they give them the standing desk, and it changes the playing field forever because now everybody's elevated. <laughs> it's true. Standing desks ended capitalism. Yeah. I didn't think it would happen. But then most people got sick of their standing desks and just went back to some uh, some seated model. You know, we, we're we're talking. We're going to probably talk a lot about office environments as we go through there because that is an area where there has been a, a lot of thought that has gone into the design. How do I make this space more conductive to cooperation or creativity or hard work? Uh, and likewise, how do I, uh, you know, keep my employees down and make them gaze up in awe at my fabulous sun throne? That sort of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, part of what you're raising here is just the implication that what can make a room a really pleasant or unpleasant place to be is not always just in the physical attributes of the room itself. It's in the, the context that caused you to be in the room and that is co continuing to cause you to remain there. Oh, certainly. But, but at the same time, a room is rather special, isn't it? Like a room is a thing that humans created. 
perhaps inspired a little. You know, you could say, well, okay, they had caves, right? Mm-hmm. You, in some places, you had you had holes and ditches, uh, naturally eroded places. But in terms of of, of like a room, that is a, an amazing in, invention of humans. A place where the the human has complete control over 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 every aspect of its design. Mm-hmm. You make yourself a little world. Yeah, you're only limited by really your, your materials and your imagination. And you can create out of that, you can create a heaven or you can create a hell. So I guess what we're doing today is creating a minor hell. Right. Now, I, I, as long as we're talking about hell I, and hellish rooms, I do want um, to make a quick point. Uh, you know, when we think about hell, which is to say when we think about artistic and sometimes cinematic depictions of torment in the afterlife – we often, what do we often see? We often see big open spaces. Lava pits, mm-hmm. maybe like a giant flaming cavern. Yeah, it's like a hellish landscape out of, uh, you know, the, the, the paintings of, of Bosch. Or it's something I – mean, I always remember the scenes in Legend, Ridley Scott's Legend, mm-hmm. where they're, I think, in hell. I'm always a little confused as to what's <laughs> actually supposed to be happening in Legend, but it's gorgeous to look at. In the midst of this sort of a kid's movie, there's this Baroque scene of uh, dwarves being tormented by, uh, by hellish butchers in this uh, infernal domain. I think about the 90s movie Spawn. I don't remember oh, yes. exactly what it looked like, but I think there was a really bad CGI hell scene there. It was basically just like a, it was like a big cave that was on fire. Yeah. So you see a lot of that, which is also kind of ridiculous when you think of caves. Like, of course, it would be more of a cramped environment. But uh, despite all these big wide open spaces we see, particularly in Western Christian traditions, as Alice K. Turner points out in her book, The History of Hell, Eastern-influenced Byzantine art often depicts the damned in isolated boxes. Uh, And uh, I actually looked up some pictures of this. And indeed, in Byzantine art, you'll see these little cubes, almost like a cube farm situation. Mm -hmm. But instead of each cube containing uh, a desk and a computer or what have you, it contains a pair of sinners in some state of torment. I guess it really forces you to ask, is hell – would a true hell be more open office plan or a cubicle farm? I think it would be more cubicle. And I think we see that by looking – again, we can look to cinematic inspiration. We can look to the modern uh, secular hells, that being interrogation rooms and also torture rooms, torture chambers and dungeons that we see in so many different works of fiction uh, and we see in so many films and movies, right? Holding cells, interrogation cells, and and cells of torture. Mm-hmm. And when I think of excellent cinematic torture rooms, <laughs> my mind, uh, which sometimes I do, uh, my mind inevitably goes to David Cronenberg's uh, 1983 film Videodrome. Yeah. The, uh, the show you only see them watching on TV – Right, unless you well, unless you have the special Criterion Collection edition, then you get to watch all the footage. And you've uh, watched it all. Yeah, I watched it yesterday. <laughs> um, the FedEx man came while I was doing it. It was a little weird, but um, but at any rate, part of the plot in this uh, this film is that there is this kind of guerrilla radio transmission or pirate radio transmission that that they pick up that is just this orange, sort of a dusky red orange room. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'll explain. I'll describe that room a little bit more as uh, as as we come back to it. But it is uh, 
It is a very unpleasant looking room, even before you really notice any unpleasantness happening in it. Well, yeah, I think the idea is that he was, Cronenberg was just trying to come up with what would be the most depraved possible TV program you can imagine. And it's just this ugly room with a person being tortured in it with no plot. Yeah, I'll go ahead and describe this room for anyone who uh, either hasn't seen the film or hasn't seen it in a while. It's, uh, again, this dusky red color. And then the opposing wall is clay, this big slab of clay that's also of of that coloration. The slab of clay is apparently electrified in in order to allow the tormentors to like push people up against it and Mm. then then, then they'll be shocked by it. And there's like a water trough in front of or at the base of that clay slab. And then there's also this area of black grating on the floor. And in the the main video uh, that uh, that is picked up in this transmission, the lighting is also just kind of uh, I don't know what the term is, just kind of like obnoxious, uneven lighting. We see it lit artistically later in like a dream sequence, mm-hmm. but in these transmissions, there's, it's just ugly lighting. It looks like an ugly, wet, dank, cold, lonely room. And then on top of that, people are, are tortured in it. So. This is your gold standard for the ultimate unpleasant space. Right. Yes. Okay. Now, we have stipulated, as as I said earlier, no torture, right? No imprisonment, no torture. So we're going to have to take those elements out. Right. But, but I, I think if you take the, the torture out of this scenario, the room itself is still very unpleasant. I agree entirely. I think uh, it, it was made exactly for that purpose, and Cronenberg did a fine job of envisioning one of the ugliest rooms you could imagine. Like I will say, I will say this: I have never seen anyone having reproduced this room. Like even individuals who who, who might be into some level of um, of simulated torment, you know. Like you see, if you see images of some sort of uh, like a, a BDSM dungeon. They, tend, they generally to, to stick to like a black coloration, black or metal or or perhaps, uh, you know, some sort of like a subway tile white kind of situation. But I've never seen this reproduced, which I think is very telling. Not that I've done like an exhaustive cataloging <laughs> or anything, but, you know, I feel like I would have probably come across it. <laughs> Okay, I I cry, Uncle. We uh, I think we've got to get away from any actual association with any real torture rooms, <laughs> and and build our room, build our special non okay. non torture room of infinite unpleasantness. All right, let's let's go for it. Now, I guess that you could divide it into multiple categories of things you could do to this space. You could have sights, sounds, smells, and then other sensations, maybe. So if, in the same way that on the TV series Queer Eye, you have a different host who's responsible for different aspects of somebody's uh, makeover or recreation. Oh, it's true. You've got like the hair guy mm-hmm. and like the food guy. Right. So in this sort of the reality show we're we're constructing, you would have a, like a different uh, uh, expert that would handle uh, each uh, sensory uh, arena of the room. Well, if we're going to start with sights, I think our first guru to come in should be Pinhead from huh. Hellraiser, right? Because he has such sights to show you. It's true. He did. Uh, he, he he did claim to have a lot of sights to show. Now, in terms of visual stimuli, the very first thing I must mention is that this room has got to have a low ceiling, right? 
Not just my personal preference, either. According to environmental psychologist Dr. Sally Augustin, research has shown that when people are in a room with a ceiling lower than about nine feet, they are more vulnerable to feeling crowded, having their, their physical space invaded, and they're distressed more easily. And apparently studies have shown that the psychological difference between like an eight-foot ceiling and a ten-foot ceiling is serious. People feel less creative in a space with lower ceilings. Now, of course, ceilings that are eight feet high are pretty common. You'll find those all over the place. I think to get really nasty, you would want to get lower than eight feet, like just barely low enough that it is really unpleasant without making anybody have to or anybody, you know, who's a normal height have to bend over. So I'm thinking a ceiling of about six feet, eight inches. How tall is the ceiling in uh – there's a there's a, a weird floor on a building and being John Malkovich. Oh yeah, I, I think the people have to stoop over, don't they? Yeah, that well, that would be unpleasant if I had to stoop. But you could be in a six foot eight room without having to bend over. It's it's true, but but I can see what you're saying. Like even if you never had to actually stoop, there is that feeling that the ceiling is closer than it should be. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, and that is like a measured psychological phenomenon. L- low ceilings make people feel uncomfortable. Hmm. Yeah. They feel crowded, they feel cramped, and their stress levels go up. And just anecdotally, I've read about, like, people trying to live in apartments that had low ceilings uh, and that, that it eventually drives them crazy. They've, they're like, I've got to move out of here. Huh. Now, I think in addition to that, we should address other aspects of the construction of the room itself. Like, uh, you got to have a low ceiling. What about windows? Oh, it almost goes without saying that you can't have windows. Right. There are no windows in the Videodrome room, at least not that we we see. Uh, Windows, at least when not obstructed, they provide you a taste of the world for which we evolved, right? A place full of uh, uh, cycles and change, of fixed features, moving entities. No matter how boring the room is, if you can look out and see – even just a, a drab city street, you can you can see something, right? You can see life. You can see change. Um, so I think the windows absolutely have to go. If anything, we need to have like a bricked up window uh-huh. just to drive the, home the fact that there used to be a way to see out of this room, but we, we just didn't have time for that. So I was looking to find some research on like empirical research on the effects of window versus windowless rooms. Mm-hmm. And what I found was by Kelly Farley and Jennifer Ann Veitch, a room with a view, a review of the effects of windows on work and well-being for the Institute for Research and Construction, the National Research Council of Canada, 2001. So this is a big literature review mm-hmm. of the research on the relationship between windows, well-being, and productivity. And so here's what they found. First of all, people definitely prefer windows. They really want to have them. It doesn't always appear to be necessary for like – Health and performance, for example, some studies in British schools showed that children in windowless classrooms did just as well as kids who could see the outside world. But lots of studies have found that people just tend to hate spaces without windows. Uh, And in the words of one study by uh, Roos in 1970, people believe that windowless workspaces were causing them to feel feelings of isolation, depression, and tension – now, it, I don't know to what extent it would actually have a, an impact on on our hellish designs here, but I have read that that if the windows are open for any extended period of time, that can have a beneficial effect on the human microbiome. Oh, probably. And, and like that's just going to come back to not only visual connection with nature, but actual 
uh, microbial connection with nature. Well, I'm assuming that with our room, probably nobody's going to stay in it longer than an hour or so. <laughs> so, uh, so we, we we wouldn't have to worry about the long term health effects. That's I true. would hope. Uh, but here's the next thing. So there is also evidence that people. When they're in a windowless environment, they dislike it so much that they try to compensate for a lack of windows with decoration. So uh, Summer in 1974 found that people in windowless places often start hanging up pictures and posters containing images of natural landscapes, bodies of water, and animals. And these go all over the walls. Well, this, of course, reminds me of our good friend, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who in The Silence of the Lambs, he's in a a, a cell with no window. Right. And so what does he do? He's uh, created a mural. He's created – I I don't recall exactly what the mural is is of. He draws pictures of Florence and stuff. Yes, because then, of course, he goes to Florence in in the next book. You know, speaking of Hannibal Lecter, who was in some kind of institution, the same has also been found in hospitals. Mm. In 1972, Wilson found that patients were twice as likely to experience post-operative delirium when they were in windowless versus windowed intensive care units. And even the ones that didn't get post-operative delirium were more likely to develop per- post-surgical depression in windowless areas. Quote, the author suggested that windows might provide some sort of necessary psychological escape from the grim realities of surgery, and without them, the additional stress is sufficient to tip the balance toward a brief psychotic episode for a large percentage of patients. Now, on the other hand, an interesting fact is that people's negative attitudes about windowless spaces seem to be based on what kind of space it is. Like workers on the floors of windowless factories didn't seem as bothered as people who worked in small windowless office spaces. And there are other interior spaces where there's evidence that people don't really mind a lack of windows. Like they don't really seem to mind a lack of windows in theaters, in restaurants, in bowling bowling alleys, in nightclubs, and in department stores and museums. This also makes me think of, uh, and and I'm not a big fan of this term, but um, the man caves that uh, some some, uh, male listeners may either have or aspire to have. Or have at least heard of. Right. And and it does bring to mind just a dark, uh, windowless basement Uh in which, uh, you know, video games and socks are everywhere, I guess. You've got a bar with a sink that you never run water in so yeah, that, that it kind of ends thing. up stinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, when you think about it, what what all these places that people don't really mind a lack of windows in seem to have in common, they tend to be large interior spaces, usually with plenty of freedom to move around and lots of activity or points of interest inside. Right. Or certainly if you're in the cinema, the the, the film itself is the window. Exactly. That would be the point of interest. And mm-hmm. yeah, and it is kind of like a window. That's a good point. So I would say busy, open interior spaces uh, seem to somewhat mitigate the unpleasantness of a lack of windows, presumably because people in these other environments have stuff to look at and room to move around. So you know what this means for us. Our temple of infinite unpleasantness should have no windows and it should also be small, small and cramped without much open floor space to move around or things to look at. Indeed. And in terms of of things to look at, uh, I think uh, Mr. Pinhead would would probably be on board with the the idea that the worst thing that you can show someone is nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, there are some forms of rooms – 
that don't actually inflict physical pain on people that could be considered torture. And one example would be solitary confinement. Right. I believe we've covered this on the show before. The, uh, the, the debilitating effects of solitary confinement are well-defined at this point. Yeah. Uh, it, it, is, it is a mental torture to put somebody in a space like that. Right, which is why it's very important that in our scenario, the person is not imprisoned. Right, they, they can they, leave at any time. They yes. can leave. How long could you stand it, though? Yeah, how long can you just stand in a featureless room without any kind of art to engage in, etc.? You might actually, I suspect, overestimate your abilities on this count because I think people underestimate sometimes how much their environment affects them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we tend to think like, well, if I'm mentally prepared, I can deal with anything. But – I don't, we're very susceptible to the aesthetic qualities of our environments, more so than we give our environments credit for. Now, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, discuss what color to paint the walls. All right, we're back. Um, Mr. Pinhead has brought in some uh, cans of paint. Some what, swatches. Yeah. Some swatches. What color, uh, what colors are our are, are best candidates for painting this uh, unpleasant room? Because we know quite well just from personal experience, right, that colors play a big role in our mood, right? Yes. So I want to start with an example here that I'm just going to go ahead and remind everybody that this one is one that there is a, a fair amount of disagreement on. Yeah. Uh, so this is – and this is, of course, so-called uh, drunk tank pink <laughs> or Baker Miller pink. So one uh, Dr. Alexander uh, Schaus – Ph.D., director of the American Institute for Biosocial Research in, Tomo in uh, Tacoma, Washington. He claimed back in the 60s and 70s that this specific shade of pink had a calming effect on humans, mm -hmm. slowing heart rate and lowering strength. I'm suspicious. Yeah. It, it, and uh, it did this – this uh, this uh, announcement of his, it did indeed lead to cells in some places being painted pink or opposing locker rooms being painted pink, uh, supposedly, to, you know, to, to make the opponent less aggressive. Okay. But follow-up studies provide mim minimal support for this effect. If anything, it's a very short-term effect. Yeah, I was looking for research on this, and some of the research that was coming up was in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry, which <laughs> I think is, is not a uh, – considered a legitimate field. Right. So I – I think on one is a good, nice cautionary tale because I think on one hand we do have to acknowledge that color is only going to have so much effect mm -hmm. on, uh, on on our feelings and our, our inner world. Well, it, this sounds kind of like what the opposite of what we want. Anyway, we don't want to calm people. Right, right. We want. I mean, to come back to the video drum room. The video drum room is that weird orange color, and orange is certainly an arresting color. It's hard to ignore. It's highly visible in low light, and it's one of the reasons that that's one of the reasons we see it on life vests and so forth. So, I think that was another excellent aesthetic choice by Cronenberg uh, uh, and his team. Well, I've got another one, and this next one is again. I look for an answer informed by empirical research. So, say hello to Pantone 448C. <laughs> so my source here is a 2012 article in the Brisbane Times by Rachel Wells. And so apparently in 2012, the Australian federal government was embarking on a public health project. It wanted to discourage smoking. And in order to discourage smoking, it wanted to make cigarettes as unappealing as possible. And this project would require commercial tobacco products in Australia to be given new packaging, which was not the packaging that would have been selected by the by the you know the tobacco producer, by mm -hmm. the manufacturer, but mandated by the government. And so it would be logo free. 
manufacturer art free with huge health warnings and and so forth. They were trying to force cigarettes to be sold in packages that would discourage people from using them. And of course, they had to mandate a color scheme for these cigarette packs. And that color scheme was supposed to make the cigarettes look disgusting and unpleasant. So they brought in help. And they consulted for several months with a market research agency called GFK Blue Moon. There was a person who worked at this company named Victoria Parr who told the author of this article in the Brisbane Times, quote, We didn't want to create attractive, aspirational packaging designed to win customers. Instead, our role was to help our client reduce demand with the ultimate aim to minimize use of the product. And the winner in their competition to select a color, which they did through, you know, normal market research means – was a really strange and unpleasant color called Pantone 448C, a sort of depressing drab color somewhere between dull brown and green. How would you describe this color? Well, I would say that for starters, I actually printed my notes out in in full color to take advantage of this. Yeah. And I can, I can barely tell that it's in color. Like it's so brown, brown that it— Kind of gray, green, brown. Yeah, like it— it barely registers as having used, uh, you know, pigments uh, from the printer. On the other hand, I have to say that this color does remind me of some of the Panzer colors that my dad would use to paint scale models of German tanks. So I, I'm not going to go as far as to say it's a pleasant color. I think this is ultimately an unpleasant color. But I think this is an example of a color that probably produces more positive memories or might stir some nostalgia in me where others would just see brown. Uh, You know, I don't don't believe it's exactly one of the colors that's used in various tank models and whatnot and and some aircraft models from the Second World War. But I think you'll agree that it would be right at home in uh, the kind of bleak rainbow that's uh, that's displayed in some of these uh, like Panzer military color paint sets. It's – Specifically, the bleakness and dullness, because they Mm -hmm. they did try many other colors when they were doing this research, including uh, like shades that we more directly perceived as brown actually didn't make it because people sometimes saw those, I think, as uh, like kind of classy looking. Yeah, Yeah, they're more like earth tones. There's something kind of unnatural about this this shade, the kind of green grayness of it. So anyway, the firm went through this process. They did seven studies conducted on over a 1,000 smokers between the ages of 16 and 64, testing out different colors to see which were the most and least appealing for cigarette packaging. Quote, participants indicated that drab dark brown packages had the lowest overall appeal and looked like they would contain the lowest quality cigarettes, which would cause the most harm. (laughs) (laughs) The cigarette packaging was supposed to go into effect in December 2012. Here's what they look like, Robert, I I showed you. They've got these horrible pictures of like the side effect, the health effects of smoking or of like revolting torture images on the cover of them. Yeah, there's one that that was like an eye with the lids being pulled back and it looks like a flash scene from Event Horizon or something. Yeah. So uh, apparently other countries are adopting this for their packages as well. Uh, Now, a few things to consider here. The testing was done on Australians, and we know that color preferences can vary from person to person and uh, also on average between different cultures. But I somehow suspect this drab color will be pretty unpopular around the world. 
Yeah, I I would be surprised if there if there are any cultures out there where this is just an exciting color, you know, because we've talked about before how like oh well you know red has more prominence say in in uh, traditional Chinese culture versus some other cu- cultures, or we've talked about green about green being the the color of the evil fairy folk mm-hmm. in, uh, in 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 older English traditions, but those are those are remarkable colors mm-hmm. that stand out. This is this is a color that is nefarious in its unremarkableness. It's also something about the way that it looks unnatural. Like I like earth tones. I, I like mm-hmm. things with like brown and green packaging. Brown and green individually are good. This is some weird kind of dull thing between them that I don't feel like I've ever seen in the world except on a computer screen. It does make me want to uh, look into camouflage again. I know we have a past episode of camouflage on the show, but a number of the different camouflage patterns that were developed during the Second World War and uh, and, and after that, a, a lot of you know, scientific thought went into them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if uh, if there's any uh, if, if there's any synchronicity between this topic and that. If there are any particular colors that, I mean, obviously you want natural colors, earthen colors, in many of your camouflage patterns. But you also don't want it to be remarkable, you know. You you want it to be unremarkable because you're not supposed to look at the tank that is painted up like this. You know, one more anecdote I read about was that the Australian government uh, was originally they were calling this color some it's something something involving the word olive because it does kind of have like an yeah. olive green thing going on. Right. But apparently, like the Olive Growers Association got in touch with them and they were like, "Please don't call it that. You're insulting our product." <laughs> It is insulting to olives because olives have a, a really a, a rich variety of coloration. Well, like we said, the world is full of wonderful brown green things that are, I don't know, they're not whatever this is. All right, so we've painted our walls with this awful color. Uh, what's next? Well, I guess the next question is whether the walls should be blank or decorated with something. Okay. Well, you know, to go back to the video drum example, you have that awful um, – piece of clay. I like that. I think Pinhead would probably just hang a bunch of chains everywhere, right? And yeah. he would and he would have stuck to just a like a black color coloration, which uh I, I don't think is that remarkable or that uh intimidating, really. Uh I don't know. Yeah, black can be an interesting color. I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, I've been to houses that have black walls before, you know? Yeah. The, the right environment if you're going for that kind of mood, if you want something kind of gothy. Yeah, you know, what happens when Pinhead tortures goths? <laughs> they go to a different room? I don't know. So I think if we are going to hang some wall art, I know just where to consult to figure out what it should be. So in 1999, the Russian-American artists, and I think they would probably consider themselves sort of conceptual art comedians, uh, Vitaly Komar, born 1943, and Alexander Melamed, born 1945, released a book chronicling an interesting project. The book was called Painting by Numbers, Komar and Melamid's Scientific Guide to Art with University of California Press, 1999. So what the authors did here is they teamed up with the Nation Institute and a professional polling group to conduct market research-style preference polling in America and 10 other countries around the world, including Russia, China, Kenya, etc., Essentially, they wanted to identify and quantify the features that people liked the most and liked the least in art. So they polled people. They did these polls to find out what colors they liked the most and the least in paintings. It turns out that blue, green, and white are very popular. Fuchsia, gold, maroon are the least popular. 
uh, but also all kinds of other things. Gold like, is not popular? No, it's Weird, not. Huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at gold in some of these paintings, it does look ugly. I guess it depends on how the gold is created. Like, I'm, like art that has like a very kind of like tactile gold leaf look to it. Mm-hmm. Like I think of um, the work of uh, Gustav Klimt. Yeah. There's a fair amount of gold or gold-like colors in there, and that's, like, that's part of the beauty of it. Well, the, the, I can't argue with the results. I mean, this is what people said. All right. Uh, but then there's also other stuff. What kind of shapes, what kind of angles, styles, representative contents, all that. What did people like and dislike? And it turns out the results are a little bit different in different countries, but not very much. Pretty much everyone around the world agrees. The most pleasant paintings are natural landscapes dominated by the color blue with views of water and a tree. Oh, that that reminds me of the uh, the hypothesis we discussed in the show in the past, that it's that paintings like that are are we we dig them because we're drawn to that kind of uh, environment mm-hmm. that that's in our genes to want to to be up on a hill in such an environment and gaze out at this uh, world. Well, sure. I mean, it might be another one of the reasons people like having windows. They like right. to be able to see the natural world. Yeah, and failing that, put this cool um, uh, pastoral picture up there. The only major variation between the countries in the most wanted types of paintings was like whether or not there were people in the paintings and who those people were. Uh-huh. Like, for example, do you want do you want some farmers hard at work, or do you want George Washington, or do you want Jesus, or do you want a naked lady? Uh, these are all fine uh, options. I mean, preferably all of these things at once. Yes, some of them had more than one. Naked George Washington, uh, high up there on yes. my, uh, my, my list of requests. Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, what about the most hated possible paintings? This offered a little bit more variation, but it still had some pretty consistent themes across the different countries. What people around the world seem to hate the most were – Abstract geometric art with sharp angles and color combinations like fuchsia, maroon, (laughs) orange, and mauve. Now, this is interesting because um, on one hand, I can't think of a painting that I like that has a bunch of like triangle shapes in it. Mm -hmm. There might be one. I'm just not remembering it. But it also makes me think that there are, to come back to camouflage, there are certain camouflage patterns that have this this kind of uh, look going on with lots of jagged angles or even a zigzag arrangement. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say easily one of the least popular uh, was like square shapes. Uh It was like square shapes with you know, four corners and really horrible color combinations like like fuchsia and orange and gold. That Videodrome orange coming back up. But I wonder if part of it is that the square is, is rather unnatural and then the square itself is this unnatural color. Yeah, I think that could be it. I mean, pe- people like pe- – people were, you know, they were kind of going against the art critics, right? The right. art critics, the stuff that they would scoff at, like the realistic representative painting of just like Jesus standing by a lake with a tree. That, you mm. know, that probably doesn't do very well in the art scene, but that is what people wanted to see. Huh. You know, on the other hand, though, there are a lot of like cubist paintings that are, that are, that are very beautiful or, or I certainly think of the, some of the work of uh, Salvador Dali who, uh, you know, would use these um, – this, he has this one piece in particular that is the, the crucifixion, but it's created with uh, with, the, with these uh, these kind of like large pixels. Mm-hmm. So it's a different image if you're standing further away from it as opposed to close up. How far away could you really get from the art, though, in the room we're creating? That's true. It would be it would be rather small. And I should say that the 
the examples that you included in our notes, th- these do not look like the work of Salvador Dali. <laughs> these, are, <laughs> these are, for the most part, n- not that engaging. I do like one or two of them, but uh, some of them just look like, like Cubist uh, birthday cake. Oh, yeah. They do have like uh, one thing that a lot of people really don't seem to like is very this very like thick layers of paint where you can see the texture in three dimensions. Hmm. Yeah, but it looks like icing. Yeah. I mean, that's a weird area because on on one hand, there are there are plenty of great paintings where that have that kind of 3D quality uh, that you you do almost want to touch them and feel the texture of them. And that's part of their beauty. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have like faux wall finishes, right, where it's just the kind of the, the tacky version of that same technique. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even considered that in the, the basic coat of paint on the room itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, I mean, so it seems like if we want to go with what has been found to be least popular in uh, in at least the these studies, we want like a base coat of like Pantone 448C and then some abstract art with sharp angles and colors like like fuchsia and mauve and maroon. Yeah, I think we we do really have to shop around for that piece of art that we hang in there. But I bet I bet something could be produced. All right, now we've talked plenty about sight, so I think maybe we should discuss the sounds of this room. Okay, let's do it. You know, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but these same two guys, Komar and Melamid, they also used the same method, used market research polling to try to figure out what were all the characteristics that people most widely loved and hated in music. Oh, yes. I remember this one. Yeah, and they teamed up with a musician named Dave Soldier and combined the things at the top of the list to synthesize uh, what they called the People's Choice Music uh, Most Wanted Song. And that included stuff like like low vocals, saxophone, piano, and humble ambition. Yeah, I remember listening to the the track that they produced to represent this. And it's just so unmemorable because it is – it's just, oh, it sounds a little bit like everything else, but nothing uh, stands out about it. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like a combination of like, oh, like like early 90s R&B and like Springsteen sort of rolled into the same song. Yeah, it's it's very lukewarm. But then they also combined all of the most hated, most annoying things, uh, according to their market research, into a single unpleasant song called Most Unwanted Song. If you've never heard it, it's worth hearing. It contains tubas, bagpipes, (laughs) wood blocks, accordion, cheap synth drum machine, pipe organ, a soprano opera singer sort of opera rapping about being a cowboy, Mm -hmm. and a children's chorus plugging retail chains and screaming about Christmas, and then somebody yelling political slogans into a megaphone. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty awful, but it's it's memorably awful. It is impossible to forget. Well, I was going to say, you know, I don't think we can just like outsource to that for the sounds we're playing in the room because it's actually so awful it's pretty enjoyable. Right. I think if we want to be more guaranteed of unpleasantness in our sonic atmosphere, we don't want to accidentally make people laugh. All right. Well, for possible inspiration here, I think we can actually look to the, 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 the real-life architects of unpleasant rooms who sometimes do lean on music and sound uh, in order to uh, uh, you know, carry out their various psychological operations. According to a 2003 BBC article, U.S. psyops used, quote-unquote, culturally offensive music to break prisoner resistance among Iraqi POWs. So we're talking, and these are specific songs that are mentioned uh, in the piece. Enter Sandman by Metallica. Okay. Which I don't think is a bad song. 
uh, Bodies by Drowning Pool. Um, yeah, no, no comment. And then uh, Barney's I Love You song. <laughs> okay. Which is not a song for grownups. It is a song, is a song for very young children mm-hmm. of a bygone era. Uh, so in, 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 in all of these cases, we're not talking about one playing of the song. We're talking about putting this particular song on repeat for, say, hours. And then that is used in conjunction with and enabling uh, sleep deprivation in the individual. So you're playing Inter Sandman over and over again to keep them from sleeping. I think it would be the volume would be key. Here, volume right? would be key, yes. Played very loud. So I think we're sort of – that would be sort of breaking the rules, I would say. I, I don't think we should be in the uh, room of infinite unpleasantness, be allowed to play something at a volume that actually hurts people. That that seems like that's uh, that's edging in torture, right? Right. Now, I, I do think that we should – we can look to examples of what people do do in order to make a room more pleasant. And – Two things come to mind, of course. At the airport, they will, of course, play the news, which I've never understood, but I guess it's engaging, right? At least people are watching it. Something to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. What we said before, what they should be doing is they should be playing Music for Airports by Brian Eno. Exactly. And that is exactly the kind of music, the kind of soundscape we should not employ in our room because something pleasant and ambient and dependable like that uh, is totally at odds with our objective. And this brings us to the world of misophonia. And this, was, uh, this has been explored in uh, an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but basically it boils down to this. Certain sounds like gum chewing, lip smacking, uh, basically whatever, whatever your pet peeves out there, whatever your individual pet peeves for sounds are, uh, th- they probably line up uh, with those that are frequently discussed in uh, discussions of misophonia. Misophonia being uh, this condition that individ- some individuals have where they simply react very strongly to this same, these same sort of triggers. Uh, according to a 2017 Newcastle study, it was, is, quote, an abnormality in the emotional control mechanism which causes their brains to go into overdrive on hearing trigger sounds. Now, obviously, we can't bank on landing only uh, individuals with misophonia in our evil room. Right. But we can think about those common triggers, uh, chewing, breathing, snoring. Perhaps we mix uh, this in with other accepted trigger sounds, stuff that we're, we're hardwired to take notice of, like a crying or a whining child, which we've also discussed on the show. Or another one that I've seen mentioned is incomplete phone calls, something where you can't help and this, at this, we run the risk of making the room engaging, but there is frequently something very annoying about not being able to decode the meaning of a particular uh, uh, communication. Oh, yeah. Like you can only hear half of a phone call, but it's in your language. So you, you sort of can't help but pay attention to it. Right. But at the same time, you can't understand it. Yeah. And it would have to be something super mundane too. You don't want to. You don't want your interest to be really, you know, perked and, and where you're saying, "Oh, what are they talking about? What is this? What is this scandalous situation they're discussing?" Well, as we've done before, I think we should try to look for some kind of empirical research on what would be the most universally accepted unpleasant sounds of this kind. So the question would be: Has anybody done research on the most unpleasant sounds in the world? Oh, yes, they have, of course. So uh, I guess. If you had to guess, right, if you had to guess what's the most unpleasant sound in the world there is, you might go with the classic nails on the chalkboard. Oh, yeah. That's the one that is typically mentioned. 
Uh, I think of the great Quint scene in Jaws, right? How does he get everybody's attention oh, in, yes. the, in the room at the town hall? Mm-hmm. You all know me, know how I make a living. Yeah, it is undeniably an awful sound. Uh, and yes, of course, research confirms that in fact people do hate this noise, but it actually doesn't always make the top of the list. Now, there have been multiple studies into this. So first of all, uh, there was one by Professor Trevor Cox of the Acoustic Research Center in Salford University in England. And he's conducted one form of research through sort of massive online voting. And his project found a winner for the most unpleasant sound out of the ones that they were uh, able to have people rank. And that was the sound of vomiting. Okay. Now, actually, it was just a simulation. It was a recording of I, – I, I listened to it. It was a very convincing simulation of vomiting. It was a dude making retching sounds and then slopping watered-down baked beans into a bucket. Okay. It is an unpleasant sound. I'll give them that. Did you listen to it? I, I haven't, but I don't have to. I can, I can just <laughs> imagine it. Because someone barfing, it seems like that shows up in every TV show, right? Mm-hmm. There's always going to be that scene of vomiting, and it's, it's always disgusting, even if they don't show you anything. And it seems like half the time they do go ahead and show you something. Now, this was back in 2007 or so, and so after vomiting, runners-up in this voting included microphone feedback, uh, the squeaks of a train on the tracks, huh. the sound of babies crying— and then the next four after that were a squeaky seesaw, a poorly played violin, whoopee cushion, and an argument in a soap opera. Okay. Um, the train track is an interesting one because I actually live next to train tracks. Yeah. And I I mean, that's a sound I probably hear a lot, but I, I almost, I really don't hear it anymore. Like nothing about the train tracks ever bother me. And yeah. there's always sound coming from Actually, I live next to two train tracks. I live next uh, to both uh, traditional train tracks mm-hmm. and uh, public transportation train tracks, the MARTA tracks here in Atlanta. As for the whoopee cushion, I don't understand that one because that is funny. The whoopee cushion is an instrument of joy. I mean, maybe it's uh, if these sounds are repeated for a certain period of time. I guess. Be. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, interestingly, there were like some differences in the rankings along demographic lines. Like young people found the sound of eating an apple with the mouth open more unpleasant than older people did. Hmm. And on average, men found the sound of babies crying more unpleasant than women did, hmm. at least in this study. Yeah, so th- there, there's going to be some variation. Uh, nails on a chalkboard, 16th on this list. People hated the train way more than nails on a chalkboard. Crazy. Hmm. Now, something interesting to note here. I I think it should be clear that some sounds are unpleasant because of their meaning, right? Because like we're picturing the act that produced them and others are somehow more intrinsically unpleasant for sonic reasons. Like – There is something conceptually horrible about vomiting that seems to be the reason we don't like that sound. But there's nothing conceptually horrible about microphone feedback or a squeaky seesaw or a train on the track, right? It's got to be just something about that sound itself. Wait, can't microphone feedback, though, can't that harm uh, recording equipment and sound equipment, though? I guess so, but I I would think that most people who heard it would not, you know, be familiar with it in that context. It can also be, is often loud enough to where it is physically painful. Right. You know, like you will want to cover your ears. And exactly, yeah. So the, the, it does have that going for it. But that would be like a sonic connotation, not like a, a thing about what it, you know, meant apart from that. Right. I wonder if uh, the sound of a ret- record scratching, if that used to be more like potently 
offensive a sound before. Oh, because you're like, my record is being damaged. Right. But then uh, you have sort of like two things that emerge, right? There's the scra- the record scratch that is a, a comedic cue mm-hmm. to let you know that some sort of social faux pas has happened. Or, of course, you have the world of, of scratch DJing that emerges where scratching uh, or various levels of scratching a record become part of the musical art form. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of a scratched rec- record scratch as being all that painful sound, but I can absolutely see how it would be mm-hmm. and how you might have to reclaim it for good. <laughs> anyway, but all this, I, I think it might be useful to separate the idea of sounds that we hate because they bring to mind things that we hate versus sounds that we hate simply because of what they sound like. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we hate squeaky, screechy, high-pitched sounds that don't inherently indicate, like, a disease risk or a predator threat or anything like that? Like, the sound of vomiting might. Right. Or, like, the sound of, of a train. Like, you're not in danger of a train that is, like, slowly stopping or travel, squeaking as it travels at low speeds close by. I mean, that's, that's just not a danger. Certainly not an instinctual one. That could maybe be a learned one. Right. I don't know. Let's look at another study. This one from 2012 in the Journal of Neuroscience, uh, Features versus Feelings, Dissociable Representations on the Acoustic Features and Valence of Aversive Sounds by Kumar, Von Kriegstein, Friston, and Griffiths. Uh, So this was a neuroimaging study identifying the most unpleasant sounds and what is happening in the brain when we experience them. They got a small group of participants who underwent MRI while listening to a collection of 47 different sounds. And then the participants rated which ones were the worst. Here's the list. Again, nails on the chalkboard is not number one. The number one most hated sound was knife on a bottle. I guess. I'm not even sure what that sounds like. I mean, it. Nothing's coming to mind. I just don't think I have a strong reaction to that one. Uh, I mean, imagine scraping a knife on a glass bottle. Who does that, though? It seems like it's an odd noise to have on the list. Uh, The people who saber the champagne bottles, I'd say? I guess. Okay. Well, anyway, continue. You seem really bothered by this. I just, it seems like like it was created entirely for this, I don't know. I'll have to try it next. uh, When I get home, I will start carving on bottles and see if it annoys me. It may have been created for the test. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for some reason, just the idea of it is annoying. So maybe maybe the sound (laughs) will be even more so. Nails on a blackboard was number five on this list. Actually, what was worse than nails on a blackboard was chalk on a blackboard. (laughs) That was number three. And you know what? I'll go along with that. I hate the sound of chalk on a chalkboard. It might be worse than fingernails. Yeah, it is kind of an annoying sound because it's the kind of squeaky. And I think here's here's something about, about chalk on a chalkboard. Even if you know what is being written, on the chalkboard, you know what the words are going to be. There is an unpredictable nature to what kind of sounds are going to be produced. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's not, there's sort of a rhythm, right? There's kind of that tack, 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 squeak, 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 tack, 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 squeak, and then the squeaking will will uh, will change in volume. Uh, I, I can't help but think that that probably plays into the annoyance factor of chalks on a chalkboard. And I imagine some of our listeners, our younger listeners, just have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Uh, because they're just not used that much anymore. It's always been the dry erase markers. Yeah, yeah. Or just computers, I guess. Well, I, when, I, when, I was, when I got out of college and I went back and taught high school for a little bit, it was already all uh, uh, marker boards. So Yeah. No, I, I had some chalkboard classes. <laughs> also in the top ten list were a female scream, a baby crying, and an electric drill. 
Oh, and a thing called an angle grinder, which is some kind of power tool I've never used. Okay. Well, those all those all make more sense. Uh, the least unpleasant sounds, the ones that people liked the most, were things like flowing water, baby laughter, thunder, applause. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. All sounds pretty good. Now, uh, so the question is what happened in the brain when the most irritating sounds were played? It was not just activity in the auditory cortex, which is where you have sound processing – uh, sound information processing. But apparently there was a lot of activity in the amygdala, which is a brain region highly associated with the processing of emotions and emotional learning, including things like fear and fear conditioning. Hmm. So the level of activity in the amygdala seemed directly correlated with how unpleasant people reported the sounds were. And the worst range of sound seemed to occur at frequencies between 2,000 and 5,000 hertz. Uh, for comparison, I don't know if we actually want to do this, but Maybe we could play a sound at about 1,000 hertz and then a sound at about 4,000 hertz. And that one is right inside the hate range. So why are sounds between 2000, about 2,000 and 5,000 hertz so unpleasant and so apt to produce negative emotions? Uh, I was reading an article about this by a science writer named Joseph Stromberg, and he points to a few co competing explanations. One of them is that Maybe this is this frequency range. It includes the natural alarm call of our nearest primate relatives, and of course, includes the natural frequency range of screams. So the thinking goes: maybe we have a natural tendency to associate sounds in this range with alarm with alarm calls, fear and distress, and they generate avoidance behaviors. It's like a chimpanzee screaming to indicate a predator. Okay, that makes sense. But then, on the other hand, going against this, Stromberg points out that uh, researching cotton-top tamarins has shown that these animals react the same to both high-frequency scraping noises like nails on a chalkboard and to normal white noise. They don't seem to mine nails on a chalkboard much in particular, even though it's in a frequency range that they could potentially associate with primate alarm calls. So that's a complication. Uh, but he also points out that it could potentially be purely mechanical because the shape of the human ear just tends to amplify some frequencies more than others. And this amplification can make certain tones cause physical pain. So, I mean, we, we would just get emotional negative conditioning for sounds in this range because they sometimes hurt. Now, I feel like we could probably do a whole episode on infrasound, but I do want to point out that we could, of course, pipe infrasound into our awful room. Uh, the infrasound generated by wind turbines, for instance, may affect some people's nervous systems by stimulating the vestibular system, producing something akin to seasickness. Mm -hmm. Other studies have linked it to annoyance and fatigue, but I don't think there's anything really conclusive out there. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it, this is a topic that we could easily return to in the future. And likewise, if we just wanted to pipe some infrasound into the room just to be on the safe side, I think it would be well within our rights. So let's see. So we want uh, – we maybe want really annoying music, but maybe not. Uh, we definitely want some high-pitched, high – you know, between maybe like 4,000 hertz type sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we definitely want some glass being scraped with metal instruments, some nails on a chalkboard, uh, maybe some babies crying. Okay. Yeah, I think that all sounds good. I guess Pinhead's not in charge of this project. He was the site uh, overlord. I'm not sure who would be in charge of sound. It's got to be Lou Reed. Lou Reed, okay. <laughs> all right, well, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we shall enter the realm of smell. All right, we're back. 
Now, I have to say, before we did any additional research on this, I was convinced that the only answer here was to have a strong lavender air freshener, as artificial as possible. Something, you know, one of those that just that smells only like purple air freshener and nothing like fresh lavender, which is actually quite pleasant. Mm, I, I think you are right on the money there. But I'm. But the thing is, I have to admit, I'm probably just right as far as you and I go, because people do love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the reason we can say we hate it is because we've encountered it places where people feel very have, feel the opposite about it, where they love it. And they think this is a fine thing to pump into a room or a house. Well, like many other things, this seems to be, you know, smells are something that uh, our reaction to is highly conditional depending on the context in which we encounter the smell. We've discussed before how you can give people the same smell into their nose and if they think it's cheese or something, they find it appetizing. And if they think it's feet, they think it's mm-hmm. gross. Right. Yeah. Context is key. And likewise, smells become uh, coded to memories and feelings. So there, there, there's not a perfect template to refer to a lot of the time for picking out particularly annoying smells or really positive smells. Uh, you know, even, again, my air freshener example doesn't hold up to that, uh, to, to that uh, standard. Uh, one, you could scrub down a room, I guess, with urine or feces, of course. <laughs> Uh, or some other, you know, naturally occurring or manufactured odor, like really strong bleach, I think would be a strong uh, a strong contender. I think we'd have to draw the line at any smell that would be uh, – that would have volatiles that would maybe be like poisonous to a right. person. Yeah, we, there's like – I think a lot of these uh, these components there, it's like a slider yeah. uh, towards poisoning them. And we don't want to actually poison someone with, say, you know, with chlorine gas or something. Right. So it would have to be something that wouldn't hurt people. It would just be extremely unpleasant. Right. And along those lines, we don't – yeah, we don't want it to be such a strong smell that it's giving somebody a headache or – you know, they're actually – some people suffer from a particular type of migraine that can be triggered by smells and actually cause them to pass out. Yeah. And again, we, we can't build our room hoping to encounter uh, people who have um, abnormal reactions to the stimuli we provide them. But, but still, that's a sign that uh, there are certain types of stimuli that would be going too far. Yeah, I think this is this one's going to be a little bit less of an exact science, but a, a good place to look for some of the worst smells on Earth, I think, would be to consult field biologists, okay. right? Because they're going to be interacting with things that are alive. Things mm-hmm. that are alive tend to produce some of the most interesting, horrible smells. Uh, or things that have been recently alive. Exactly. But then again, that is also the smell of things that are alive. I mean, there's – when something right. is decomposing, that is the smell of uh, a lot of biological activity. The smell of death is the smell of life. Yeah. So last year, the wildlife ecologist and conservation biologist David Steen, who is an expert on reptiles and amphibians, kicked off this glorious thread on science Twitter, which I saw written up in a couple of places. Uh, and uh, it got lots of people who work in the biosciences competing to name the worst odor they have ever encountered in their lives. Wait, please tell me that science Twitter is a separate Twitter I can go to? This well, is just science? It's, it's, uh, it is not a separate Twitter, but it is, a, it is a better place on Twitter than most places on Twitter. Oh, so this is just, peop- this is just the science folk on Twitter? Yes. Okay, well, I already know about that. I was hoping it was its own thing. That would be a very nice thing if it were its own thing and we uh, and did not depend on Twitter as a whole. But so there was a few competitors worth mentioning that I was reading about. Uh, one thing that some, somebody mentioned was musk glands of dead long-tailed weasels. Okay. And so this is their anal glands. They've got these oily contents that are supposedly just awful. Uh, dead whales washed up and rotting on the shore. Okay. Vulture vomit. Ah. Got got a mention. 
But Steen and several others agreed, though, for some reason, uh, and I've not been able to find the re- uh, in any hypothesized reason for this, is that the absolute worst smell is dead turtle. Huh, interesting. Or, uh, rotting turtle carcass can apparently induce immediate vomiting, even in field biologists who should be kind of hardened to bad smells. Huh. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Now, sadly, one of the problems with this uh, smell conundrum is that, uh, of course, uh, odor receptors stop sending messages to the brain about a lingering odor after a few minutes and instead focus on novel smells. This is why, to get back to an earlier example, you get used to that weird cooking smell in your kitchen until you pop out and then come back in. Uh, you know, triggering it a few minutes later. Uh, yeah, this is a great point. And this is what's known as olfactory fatigue. After a few minutes, your brain tends to stop paying attention to bad smells. Uh, now, whatever smell we ultimately wanted to put in this room, I think the answer to make it ultimately unpleasant would be that it must cycle its bad odors, changing them uh, every few minutes to provide high contrast nasal discomfort. All right, so timed little uh, odor spitters in the corners. Okay, I like that. Right. Now, I guess we we still haven't landed on an odor because dead turtle might just be too strong. We don't want to necessarily make people vomit. Well, well, I tell you what is often a sweet sweet spot, I think, is when you have a bad odor and then uh, some sort of artificial uh, odor, perhaps that lavender we were talking about earlier, fighting to, to cover it up, you know, where everything smells a little like artificial lemon, but also like illness. But again, that might be going too strong, too. No, you are a warped master. You, <laughs> you should be one of the Cenobites, Robert. <laughs> okay, so I think we've got the visual, auditory, and, and, uh, and smell-based aspects of this room. Uh, we got a good idea what to do with that. But what about the other sensations? Ooh, well, I have to say that dampness goes a long way towards making me uncomfortable, especially if it's paired with with bedding. Oh, yeah. Um, I, so I, I found this in the past on, say, camping trips where everything gets a little wet and a mm-hmm. little cold. Also, uh, when I was recently in Costa Rica, there at one point we were staying in the cloud forest and the, the, the little uh, house that we were staying in, it was, it was very nice. But given the environment, uh, and it, everything got a little bit moist and stayed moist. Mm-hmm. And it was just part of the environment. And I, I found that a bit unpleasant. And, and to come back to that Videodrome room, uh, the opposing wall is clearly wet clay. There's a trough of, of, of water beneath it. And uh, based on, I think it was a Cronenberg... Um, a bit of commentary. I think he was the one who said that the room was as as cold and unpleasant to be in as it, as it looks. Like it was just a, a <laughs> yeah. very unpleasant place in terms of the, the the moisture and the temperature. Well, the temperature is a good point because obviously the room of infinite unpleasantness should be uncomfortably hot or uncomfortably cold. But the question is which? I think it has to be cold because for hot – as long as you're not getting into dangerous temperatures, you can always take off, uh, you know, a little more clothing, right? People can always strip down a little bit. And, it, I mean, we don't – if you succeed in making a steam room or a sauna, then you have made a pleasant environment. Have you ever noticed that this is something that people love to fight about? People love to have arguments about whether it's worse for a place to be too hot or too cold. Well, and, and I've heard our coworkers arguing about this. Yeah, I mean, it's that's going to it's going to vary tremendously from person to person, depending on you know your background, your age, all these things. Because mm-hmm. I 
I probably there was probably a time when I would have said, "Oh, I just don't want to be too hot at all." But nowadays, I'm I'm the, I'm the reverse. Like I would just prefer to be a little too hot versus a little too cold. I think for me, it depends on what I'm doing. I think if I'm like if it's like. Uh, hanging out recreational time, I'd rather be a little too warm. And if it's like I'm trying to work and focus on something, I'd rather be a little too cold. Oh, I want it hot on both ways. Like, <laughs> it's like sometimes when I'm working on the podcast during the summer, I'll be uh, on my front porch just sweating bullets. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like sweating in my sleep. I, I like that uh, too. You know, I really, I would just, I would, I guess just live in, in Florida. I'm just, I just need to move to Florida at uh, this point. Okay, weirdo. Okay, so <laughs> the question though is, uh, do we have have any like actual factual data we can base the, our, our uh, conclusion on here? Should it be too warm or too cool? Uh, and yep, we have the technology here. So I was reading about this in the Washington Post, an article from 2016. There's a guy named Patrick Bayless, who at the time was a fifth-year PhD candidate in agricultural and resource economics at Berkeley. And he used the power of social media for what's known as sentiment analysis. And while I really still hate social media, this is one very cool and interesting thing you can do with it. You can gather massive amounts of cross-referenced organic data through something like Twitter. And then you could research something like what types of words do people start tweeting more often than they normally would in a given location when the president arrives in town or something like Mm -hmm. that. So what Bayless did here was he examined about a billion tweets in 2014 and 2015, and he cross-referenced the users' locations with weather data reporting temperature and then used an automated program to analyze the mood-indicating contents of the tweets and correlated that to changes in temperature. Uh, So basically, did the words people were using in their tweets indicate they were currently happy or unhappy? And to, uh, to quote from the uh, Write up in the Washington Post, quote, he found that compared with a day when the high temperature is 72.5 degrees, a day with a high temperature of 90 degrees makes the typical person experience a drop in happiness similar to the drop in happiness between Sunday and Monday. <laughs> And so he controlled for a bunch of different kinds of factors and found that the trend still held. Quote, a one-degree increase in temperature has an effect on your happiness that's similar to living in an area with a median income that is $500 lower. So hot temperatures made people unhappy. Cold temperature also made people less happy, but the the effect was much less consistent Hmm. in how it correlated with moods. So according to this research, if, if that's correct, if you want to make more people on average more uncomfortable, it should be too warm instead of too cool. Hmm. All right. Well, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with the, the raw data here, but <laughs> my experience yeah. and certainly the, the standard set by the video drum set uh-huh. uh, would indicate that we should go cold. But, uh, but, uh, but I'll go with the science here and so, then we'll go, we'll go warm. Well, if we're going to try to t- – maybe you could alternate, you know, based on the person. Like uh, we could, if you we're going to test your metal mm-hmm. in the room and see how long you can hang out in there without leaving, we should make it, what, like 52 degrees? Yeah, that would probably do it. On the other hand, I guess it should be in there, what, what, like maybe about 87, something like that. Yeah, I get, but I guess it's important to, for us to remember, too, that it's not just going to be the temperature with our room. It's going to be the, all these other factors as well. Mm-hmm. And when I think to my own experiences with warm or hot places that I like, uh, there are other aspects there as well. You know, like I am in a sauna, which is kind of a sacred space, or I am on my porch, you know, writing or researching, doing something enjoyable. And uh, and that is not the overall experience that we are creating in our, our awful room. 
I wonder if we'll inspire somebody as like an art project to build this room and have it as like a museum exhibit that people could visit. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear from anybody who dares to try to create this room. Uh, and likewise, if you encounter rooms and spaces as you go about your daily life that kind of match up with what we've been talking about here, uh, we would definitely love to hear from you. And yes, take a picture of it if you can. You know, another thing I will say is that though we keep emphasizing that no torture is allowed. I would say if you were to actually create this room and in in some way try to make people go into it without uh, the true freedom to enter and leave at their own will at any time, this would be torture. Well, or or art. You know, sometimes art is about it's about about strong emotional responses. It's about uh, entering into say an uh, an art uh, installation that makes you feel uncomfortable, that uh, makes you that challenges your uh, your ideas about the world. So. Really, we're we're asking people not to create torment, but an artistic experience. Yeah. Oh, I guess it's key that it's of of the entrance own free will and may leave mm-hmm. at any time. Yeah. I'm saying if you're like a landlord, don't do this to your tenants just to <laughs> no, see no, no, what will no. happen. Right. Likewise, I I know we have some realtors out there. I bet some realtors have some stories like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are there houses that just accidentally ended up this way? Yeah, there have to be. There have to be because I, I – I'm friends with some realtors on uh, social media, and they'll post they'll post some some very odd rooms from time to time. So surely, uh, surely there's some intel intel out there. Art with jagged a- angles, drab colors never found in nature, sounds of metal scraping on glass, sort of shrimp smell everywhere. I think yeah, that that must exist somewhere. <laughs> All right, well there you have it. The most unpleasant room, room of infinite unpleasantness. We've provided the blueprint. We uh, leave you to do what you will. Uh, with the rest of it. As always, if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. There is also a tab on there for our store, which has some cool logo designs, but also episode-related designs. In fact, just before we came in to record this episode, we found out that there is a new squirrel shirt, a new Skug shirt in the market uh, what is it? The squirrels are not what they seem, I, I believe it says. I that's right. And there's this uh, charming illustration of a squirrel, and it has, like, death's head eyes. So it's black and white. Check it out. You can also get it. I think you can get it in any color, though. That's one of the beauties of the the, the Tee Public store is you can choose your own color scheme. Uh, but check that out. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending a dime, just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And don't forget about Invention. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 